Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you happen to be looking for an unusual television show, one starring an ex-Nazi and a Hollywood star probably would qualify. This is an ABC color presentation. And I should say, we're not just talking about any ex-Nazi or any Hollywood star here. The Nazi had been crucial to Hitler's regime. And the Hollywood star was one of the most famous people who has ever worked in the movies, and perhaps one of the most famous people who ever will. In fact, the year that this TV show aired, 1955, he had a little project in the works, one which had not yet been unveiled to the public, even though he was already advertising it heavily. It was a park he was building, a theme park, you might say. Walt Disney's Disneyland. When you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. The goal of Walt Disney's TV programs about Disneyland was to explain the various aspects of his park. Each week as you enter this timeless land, one of these many worlds will open to you. There was Fantasyland, of course, plus Frontierland and Adventureland, which made perfect sense at a moment when the genre of the Western was incredibly popular in America. Then, though, there was a land which Disney was going to have to market a little bit more aggressively. Many of the things that seem impossible now will become realities tomorrow. One of a man's oldest dreams has been the desire for space travel, to travel to other worlds. Until recently... This seemed to be an impossibility. But Disney assured listeners that space travel was not impossible. Sure, no one had ever been to space. The Russians wouldn't launch Sputnik for a couple of years still. And John F. Kennedy wouldn't even call for putting a man on the moon till the next decade. But the marketing of space had begun. It had begun in part because Disney wanted to advertise a section of his yet-to-be-open theme park, which he called Tomorrowland, And it also began because some of the scientists who wanted to take us into outer space realized the marketing of that dream couldn't start soon enough. Which is why Walt Disney unveiled, as part of his Disneyland series, a program called Man in Space, starring the Nazis' former rocket guru, Werner von Braun. The training methods for future space flight and the special equipment needed for survival are much like those of present high-altitude flying. And the experiments we are making today are helping us to solve the more complex problems to come. The fascinating thing about him is he was fabulous at public relations. He could speak English really well. He could communicate these complex ideas of space travel in ways that the average person could understand, in ways that congressmen and senators could understand, in ways that will then get people behind the idea that we can do this. That's David Meerman Scott, co-author of the book Marketing the Moon, The Selling of the Apollo Lunar Program. So in, in a sense, he was a, not only a fabulous rocket scientist, but also a fabulous cheerleader for the space program to the point that some people within NASA kind of got annoyed at him, but recognized that he had that ability and therefore he was somebody that we needed to focus with. Scott says the marketing of the 1969 moon landing started long before the actual landing. And though the science of getting people to the moon was extraordinary, 
the task of convincing the American public that such an achievement mattered, it was also monumental. Even though TV shows were more often filled with talk about the Western frontier, getting people to the frontiers of space, that was the new goal. And von Braun, who the U.S. had spirited out of Europe, along with lots of other Nazi scientists, he understood the power of this new narrative. He did an interview a couple of days after Apollo 11 landed, and we have this wonderful quote in our book where he said, without public relations, we couldn't have done it. And he was speaking to members of the media. And I think that's correct. I think without the idea of public relations and and his role in it, although he didn't say it that way, it would have been very difficult for us to commit those sorts of resources to such a crazy project. When David Scott talks about the resources we committed to get to the moon, he's talking about a big chunk of change. Between 1965 and 1968, we spent 4% of our budget on NASA, which is enormous. That's a bigger wedge of the federal budget than we now spend on education and veterans' benefits combined. And lots of people worried this made no sense at all. And there were a lot of people who said, what in the world are we doing? And you have to remember, this is during the Vietnam War. So we were spending a massive chunk of money on the Vietnam War as well. So, okay, so we're doing the war and then we're doing this. This is, some people thought, was was crazy, crazy stuff. But it was something that a lot of people then thought we did need to do. And it was 4% of the national budget, roughly, but also 2% of the national workforce. It's an amazing number of people, 400,000 people. And so the idea of should we be spending this kind of money? Of course, it, it's Congress who makes the decisions around that. But Congress, as affected by the American people, saying, yes, this is something we could do. And, and that's where this idea of marketing really comes into it, is that we had to sell, we being collectively the American people, had to sell this idea that we're going to put humans onto the surface of the moon, which is just a crazy, audacious kind of thing to, to want to do. Is your sense, like, how much political resistance do you think there was to, you know, I mean, I just wonder how many politicians were saying this is just not the way to spend our money. I'm not you haven't convinced me that putting a couple people on the moon is any like would benefit us. There were quite a few of those congressmen, senators, governors who said, no, we don't want to do this. But then it then it turned into, okay, well, what can we do to convince you individuals that this is something we could do. And that's one reason why you see a lot of the NASA facilities are in the South, is because some of the um, congressmen and senators from the South uh, were opposed and said, okay, well, how would you like to have mission control in Houston? How would you like to have uh, Apollo rockets built in Huntsville in Alabama? And that sort of turned people around when it turned into a bit of a pork <laughs> situation to bring, uh, to bring the actual facilities into those places. Uh, so yeah, they had to convince a number of different people in different ways that this is something that we can do. And there were different things that, that we, could, we could do to use that con- convincing. Okay, so we talked about some of what's going on in the 50s. You know, people are starting to think about the Western as kind of like the new frontier for the Western is, is space. And, and Walt Disney is opening Tomorrowland at Disneyland. Um, in the very late 50s, a decade before man gets to the moon, um, NASA gives Life magazine this exclusive deal and like this look into the lives of the astronauts. It's very like 
People magazine that you might see now, like, now you can see this person's wedding or this person's baby or whatever. Why? Why did that happen? So it was really interesting that they didn't expect that the astronauts would be seen as these massive celebrities, even before they went into space. NASA didn't expect they that. They did not expect it. They, they expected there would be interest in the astronauts, but they didn't expect the unbelievable celebrities that these initially, the Mercury 7, beca- and then other astronauts later, became. So they recognized, I think, I th- this is very controversial, but I think very clever. They recognized that... The media was going to be interested in their personal lives. Who are they married to? Do they have kids? Are they religious? Do they smoke cigarettes? I mean, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so what NASA decided was that they would give an exclusive contract to Life magazine for the astronauts' personal stories. And so the only reporters who were allowed in their private homes were Life magazine reporters. So there's these cool video videos where there's other reporters camped out with television cameras and microphones in front of their houses, and the only people inside are the Life magazine reporters. And so they were the ones who then told those personal stories. And so therefore, the American public could see who the astronauts are as individual people, as private citizens. But then also um, any member of the media could then learn about their their professional career because, of course, they're paid for by the U.S. government. Uh, And so I think that worked out really well. And uh, many of the PR people we spoke with at NASA who worked during that period of time also believed that it worked out well. But it was controversial because they were actually paid by the Life astronauts magazine. Were they paid. were. They were paid by Life magazine. And it was a substantial amount of money. Um, and so one of the arguments was, well, our wives have to look pretty all the time and have new clothing. And we, we're on a military salary. They're basically on the salary of a fighter pilot. So the idea that a little bit extra, a little bit of extra income allowed them to um, be able to become celebrities and, and enjoy, not enjoy, but have the trappings of, of that, including nice clothing, um, worked out in the end, I believe, very strongly. Do, do you think that was key to making the, the, the mission and the excitement around space work, that people are like, you know, Buzz Aldrin, John Glenn, Neil, I, I, like, I know who these people are. I know how many kids they have and, like, what the, whatever, what their favorite color is and their, their favorite food and stuff. I mean, do you think that was important? to like connecting the American public to this. I do. I think it was very important. The astronauts as celebrities was a very important aspect of selling the idea that we should be spending all this crazy amount of money to go to the moon. Mm. And there was a very interesting dynamic that was going on around this celebrity thing. And, and it is the idea of live television on the surface of the moon and live television in the spacecraft. Because... Many of the astronauts said, we don't want to have live television. And so it was very controversial about doing it from the astronauts' perspective. Uh, and then other astronauts said, well, hey, this is what we signed up for. We're, we're celebrities. We're famous. We are the people who are b- being chosen for this mission. We have to bring the American people along with us. And then also the scientific uh, community that was in charge of putting together the spacecraft, it was controversial there too because the television cameras were heavy 
and they required a lot of power to get to the moon. And if you took 20 pounds of television equipment, it meant you couldn't take 20 pounds of something else. Mm. Um, so there were a lot of scientists that said, don't bring television cameras to the moon. Fortunately, the public affairs department was very strongly in support of, of doing it. And so we now have these amazing fi- images of, of our now heroes on the surface of the moon. Mm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with David Muirman Scott, co-author of the book Marketing the Moon, the Selling of the Apollo Lunar Program. One of the amazing things to me looking back is, I don't know what you call it, but it looks like product placement. Um, There were companies galore saying, we supplied the cameras on board or the watches for the astronauts or uh, one of my favorites is Stouffer's um, advertised that Everybody who's been to the moon is eating Stouffer's. Apparently, it was like one of the first things that people ate once they came back from the moon. What was the deal with all this product placement? Why was it happy? It seems a little on the border of a sellout, like when you look back. But just give me a sense of how did this all come to be? So there were a whole bunch of products that were used as part of the space program. So Omega watches, Hasselblad cameras, Fisher pens, all sorts of different products. And if your product was used uh, on a lunar mission, that was amazing from Can a marketing perspective. Can I just ask you, were they wearing Omega watches because they were good? Or is this like a Batman thing where they're like, here's a hundred, here's however much money uh, to put our car or our watch, you know, no, on, on Batman, James not. Bond or whatever? They actually, no. they actually tested many different watches and Omega by the way, not made in the United States, and they did test some watches that were made in the United States, that was the one that they felt was going to perform the best for what they needed. That timepiece was extremely important. In an analog world, having that timepiece was really, really, really important. But then once it was selected, um, Omega could say that Omega watches were used by the astronauts. But interestingly, and by the way, they were allowed to use photographs of the missions. But there were strict rules that said that um, they could not use photographs of the astronauts actually using that particular item. And they could not imply that a particular astronaut used a particular item. So they could say, for example, Tang went on Apollo 11. But they could not say Buzz Aldrin drank Tang on Apollo 11. They could show the astronauts, but they could not show them drinking something. So it was an interesting dynamic in what they were allowed to do and what they weren't allowed to do. But from an advertiser's perspective, this is gold because it was not a product placement fee. And because the photographs were in the public domain, paid for by the American people. They didn't have to pay for the use of the photographs, but they just had to follow these particular rules. Do you think it was a mistake for NASA to allow just legions of companies to say, this is the food that the astronauts are eating? Did did it overly commercialize or sort of water down the specialness of this effort? I think the opposite. I believe that the idea of allowing the marketing people and public relations people from literally thousands of different companies to 
be a surrogate public relations team for NASA was a brilliant move. And and it wasn't just the consumer products like watches and pens and cameras and, and, and food. It was also the rockets themselves. And so it was IBM and Raytheon and Boeing and companies like that, General Motors, Ford. All of these companies built different parts of the space program. And because those companies were so excited to be able to talk about it, the consumer brands, uh, of course, talked to the public about it. But then the big business brands, they were building missiles for the Vietnam War, and all of a sudden they were building spacecraft to go to the moon. So that's something incredibly positive that they could talk about. And that added to the idea of the space, the excitement of space travel. If people could get excited about drinking the same thing the astronauts do or wearing the same watch that they do or flying on an airplane made by the company that made the spacecraft that's going to the moon, that's a good thing. So ultimately, uh, July of 1969 comes around and this whole sort of marketing effort to get people interested in frankly, something their tax dollars were subsidizing to a huge degree, sort of comes to fruition. When you think about, you know, the astronauts going up and the interest in Apollo 11, explain how a decade or more of marketing paid off in that moment. So it was sold as a story, as a quest story. We were going after a very definable goal that was set out by John F. Kennedy eight or nine years earlier, which is land a man on the surface of the moon, bring him safely back to Earth. Apollo 11 was the culmination of that. A number of different uh, missions leading up to it, and then finally Apollo 11. And it was fabulously successful. We achieved that goal. And so we had this opportunity to clap and say, yes, and America is number one. And this was a really, really, really big deal at a time um, where there was a lot of chaos and strife in this country. There was protests around Vietnam. It was the same month as Woodstock. Uh, it was just so many interesting things going on at that time, racial segregation. It was, um, it was a perfect moment to bring not only the American people together, but the people of the world together around this incredible achievement. Hmm. You write that this is a quote, except for the successful failure of Apollo 13, NASA never again captured the public's imagination after Apollo 11. So... Here we've been talking about this huge marketing effort, super successful. People are very interested. And then it kind of all dissipated in, in a lot of ways. Why? Well, I think that NASA, in terms of human space flight, never achieved anything better than that moment. We did Apollo several other times, five more times we successfully landed. And then we essentially have what I refer to the space dump truck, the space shuttle going around and around and around and around and around and around the world a whole bunch of times and not much else happened with that. But NASA has done a fabulous job recently with the robotic missions. I mean, my gosh, going to Mars and landing on an asteroid and some of the amazing pictures of the outer planets like Pluto have been great. It just hasn't been human space travel. So there's a lot of people who are fascinated by the robotic travel 
travel, but human space travel is what gets the entire world around something, and we just haven't done anything in 50 years. Hmm. David Meerman Scott is a co-author of the book Marketing the Moon, The Selling of the Apollo Lunar Program. David, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Kara. This has been so much fun. We'll have more about the curious marriage of marketing and the moon, including links to over 40 Apollo 11 press kits that's on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Songer, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineers Doug Sugertz and Andrew Masawa. We also had production help from Nadia Lewis and Emily Griffinius. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.